please, please uh, make it if you at all can. James chapter 4 is where we are. We're going to be finishing up this, this chapter. Uh, last week we, we finished at verse 10 um, of chapter 4, which uh, uh, the, the, the ending exhortation read like this. Verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And he was the, he was the, the, the application for all those sinners who find themselves unconverted, unregenerate, false converts in the people of God. God gives more grace. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep over your sin, he's saying. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So that we see the, the context of even tonight's passage is in the context of being humble before the Lord and the different effects that will have, or rather, the different effects that not doing that will have. So he goes from exhorting false converts those that he called whores, spiritual adulterers in the church who, who claim to be Christ's bride but are actually being unfaithful, sleeping with the world, breaking covenant with God who are not truly saved. That was, that was that section we just read last week. And now he goes to the brothers. He addresses the Christians, the brothers and sisters in the church because the sins that beset the unconverted still attack and tempt the converted. True Christians, though we might escape from, the, from the, the, the horrible condemnation of what was said at the beginning of chapter 4, and even though the, the call to be converted at the, at the middle of chapter 4 there is not necessarily for us, yet we are always drawing near to God, being cleansed in heart and hand and mind by the gospel of Jesus, we all need to take verse 10 very seriously. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, here's two different ways that we can fail to humble ourselves before God and therefore fail to be exalted by God. First is in chapter 11 and 12, and the second is in verse 13 to 17. The first regards our pride against other humans, other people, our neighbors, and the second refers to our pride in our relationship to God. So look at verse 11 as we read tonight's verses. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is also able to destroy and to save. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a town and spend such and such a year there and make such and such a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. May God bless the reading of the word in our midst this, this evening. Amen. Amen. <laughs> James has, as we said, these two categories of pride and the way that it manifests. Firstly, he's going to speak to the brothers. The way that we speak about 
behind closed doors or speak about, maybe even face-to-face, our brothers and sisters in the church and how pride that is both against God and against the law of God and against the word of God manifests in misspeaking one to another. This has been a common theme for James, that as he said back in chapter 1, to bridle the tongue. In chapter 2, he spoke about loving each other with words. And in fact, chapter 3, he has also said, uh, spoken to us about the power and the destructive power of an untamed tongue. And so it comes up again today in the language of slandering. He says in Verse, uh, in chapter 4 and verse 11, the speak evil against one another, brothers. Those who speak against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. All of these words behind there are the, are the language of slander. And scripture uses this base word and uses this idea of slander to sort of be a catch-all for misspeaking in such a way as to ruin another person's reputation. Uh, dishonest speech or True speech with a dishonest uh, uh, intention which brings down the reputation of, those, of that other person, that other Christian. It's, it's sometimes in scripture relating to questioning genuine authority. This language is used uh, when, when, the, when the Israelites are questioning the authority of Moses and Aaron. They are slandering Moses and Aaron because they are grumbling. They're chiding underneath the, 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 the authority that God had truly given. They're questioning. They're grumbling. They're just annoyed at being told what to do. In that sense, they are slandering those in positions given by God. And other times, it's speaking with authority on a topic or about a person you just don't have the right to. So, so claiming somebody else's intention or speaking to something that is secretive but that you know about and that you don't have a right to speak about or, or standing in the place of someone who could answer and just giving your ignorant answer instead. These, these are different ways that we might slander. We might use our tongue in ways that are damaging to others. Other times and more clearly, it's when we slander, when we speak nastily of somebody in secret. It still counts if it's just to your spouse. It still counts if the person you're talking to is your best friend and prayer partner. It still counts. To slander is to speak evil against another. Sometimes it is referring this language in Scripture to bringing incorrect accusations in public to people. Jesus was slandered when he was brought on Good Friday to the courts, both of Ananias and Caiaphas and, of course, Pilate and Herod. And in every court, he was brought false accusations against him. They were lying about what he said, or they were saying true things that he said, but saying it in in such a way as to twist the application and, and implication of that truth. Jesus knows what it is like to be slandered, and he commands us through his younger brother James to, re- uh, to remove that from our midst. Sometimes our slander, and in fact in every case, it is divisive and it is harmful to a peaceful community uh, that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 18 of chapter 3, he said, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Always slandering is a part of the, the conflict and, and sometimes it causes conflict. Slandering always, always is the root and the, the seed that brings about conflict, like a grain of sand in the engine or like, like one thing that has gone wrong in, the, in, in a mighty machine. It is able to grind everything to a halt and damage it and rust it. Uh, uh, sometimes conflict is like the food that you've left out on, the, uh, out on the bench or out on the porch or that you've left out the bin and the bin lid is open. It doesn't matter what kind of food that is left out there, flies will gather. Conflict is like the food. Slander is like the flies. 
Slander pops up in our mouths, and I'm talking to Christians just like James is. We're not, we're, we're, we're not uh, uh, immune to this. I would say the worst types of slander have been the religious types of slander. I'm not going to say that, that, that that's you tonight, but I want you to do some testing of your own heart. Whenever there is some conflict, maybe about a good thing that needs conflict. Maybe it's a conflict that shouldn't have had conflict, but there was a, there was a, a, a collision of personalities. Maybe there was something that uh, went wrong but could have been solved peacefully, but things were handled wrongly. There's a clash of authorities. Whatever it is, every time some of the food is left out, flies gather. doesn't matter what type of food it is. Every time there is conflict in the church, slander gathers. Because as soon as there's a conflict, no one just walks away and totally forgets about it. You're always running it over in your head, thinking about that person's actual motivations, what they were actually trying to do, what they really thought, what they really should have been told, what you're going to say to them the next time you see them, how you're going to tell this story later. And of course, then that happens. How is church? What happened in the members meeting? How is fellowship group? How's that person that you're disagreeing with? How did that theological argument go? And, and, and then you start retelling the story in such a way, always to slander them and paint yourself as the holy and righteous one that was, that was undone and that was uh, uh, innocently attacked by, by the dogs that encompass me, right? We always, whenever there is conflict, we always walk around, walk, sorry, walk away and the slander begins. It's always divisive. It never is conductive to a peaceful community and therefore James is commanding with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, to avoid all types of slander. In verse 11, the exhortation comes, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And then he equates it to speaking evil against the law. Look at verse 12. Uh, Sorry, sorry, uh, uh, the the next sentence in verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And if you judge the law, you don't do the law, but you are yourself a judge. Verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So this is, this is James's paradigm. And if you go back to chapter 2, verse 18, he's already explained the paradigm through which he understands law, love, and ethics and conduct in the church community. He's already said, quoting Leviticus 19, 18, back in chapter 2, verse 18, and quoting Jesus when he was on earth, he's already said to us that the overarching rule of law, the overarching spirit of the law, is love to your neighbor. Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus reiterated it, and he said that that is the foundation and the overarching principle of all law. Remember when he said, love God, love your neighbor, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. And as you walk in the law and obedience to the law, it should be evident because the people around you are being loved. God himself is being loved through you. So this is where this is where James is then able to say, just as he did in chapter two with partiality, he's able to say now with slander that if you slander your brother, you are breaking that law which commands us to love. Not only are you breaking one of the Ten Commandments, which is not to bear false witness about other people, but but in an even higher regard and in an even higher degree, you're breaking the law of love. And that has other 
necessary implications. So if you speak evil against a brother and you judge your brother, now this is not discussion about church discipline. This is not bringing the word to bear to a given situation when there is sin. This is not speaking about making clear lines in theology or even in denominations or especially in cults and false religions and false Christs. This is not talking about that. This is talking about in the congregation, in the community of faith, do not speak evil, speak about one another with evil intent. And he says, if you do that, number one, you are, you are judging them under your own law. This is why, this is why he's able to say that if you judge your brother and slander your brother, you're judging the law and putting yourself above the law. Because first of all, you're, you, you judge the law because you are saying that its commandments are insufficient or that, in some way, it just doesn't apply to you. Like, we know it says, love one another. We know it says, put away all filthy speech. We know that it says, do not slander. Multiple times throughout the New Testament, every writer will say something about the way we speak about each other with our tongues. But there's just a certain degree to which God, being mostly wise, did not consider my situation. And so while, while, while mostly good can be done by obeying the law, I'm the type of Christian, I'm just, I'm so holy that the Lord doesn't apply to me as much. You ever met that person? You ever been that person? You realize you start making excuses to not obey the law because you're such a law keeper. There's just, there's just the type of person that can be so devoted to the law and holiness that the law and holiness stop applying to them. This was exactly the problem of the Pharisees that Jesus dealt with. We need to uphold the law of the Sabbath, so let's murder Jesus a day early. We need to uphold the laws of the Sabbath, so let's, let's murder Jesus who keeps healing people on the Sabbath. We need to keep ourselves really holy, so let's get somebody else to murder him. My favorite one around Easter time, my absolute favorite one is, let's pay a guy to betray Jesus so we can murder him in the dark, and then when he regrets it and gives us back the 30 pieces of silver, we will say, this is blood money and cannot be used in the temple of God, so let us go and buy a land for ourselves to get a profit. That's how holy they are. They'll, they'll, they'll put aside the law because they, they have a, a motive, they have a personality, they have a certain level of holiness that the law just doesn't quite measure up to. It's just that the Bible is not applicable in every circumstance. This is what James is speaking about. Those who slander, and, and in a specific situation, we can't escape it. Every time you, friend, slander a brother or sister in the church, you are saying this in your heart. The law just doesn't apply. It's just not all-encompassing. It's not actually all that holy. Sometimes it's overgeneralized and unhelpful, and I need to speak evil about a person, lest I have to confront them or lest I have to speak truthfully, or lest I have to put up with other people liking somebody that I don't like. So number one, we are judging the law because we are saying under the law they are, uh, the, 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 that the law is not all applicable. It also is to say and start judging people under your own law. So that, of course, it's, it's not so much a problem. And again, let's take the Pharisees who no one wants to be uh, compared with, but this is what James is doing. Uh, let's take the Pharisees and show how we are all just in a, we have a little Pharisee sitting on each of our shoulders. Uh, 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 there's another sense in which when you judge or when you slander or when you speak evil against a brother, you're also starting to say that where that law is insufficient and inapplicable, I do have another law which is applicable and which is all-encompassing. The all-holy, the almighty, the all-righteous law 
of thou shalt not offend me. Or maybe it's another law. Maybe we don't mind getting offended, but maybe it's the one that we say, thou shalt not inconvenience me. Or thou shalt not embarrass me. We make up our own laws so that whether we realize it or not, when people step over those laws, we start setting apart the law of God so that we can fulfill our own mighty and holy law to the holy and mighty God being us and take vengeance on those people who have broken the law that we have judged them under. So in that way, we have put aside the law of God and then made ourselves the judge, not just over the law, but also over other Christians. They dared to question me. They dared to inconvenience me. They dared to offend me. They dared to forget me. They dared to put somebody else before me. They dared to forget to say thank you to me. None of that is okay. I must act to to avenge my own holy righteousness. Here's what James is getting at. The person who simply thinks they're just, they're just trying to use their tongue in a little way to stab at the other person's reputation. James says no. There is a blasphemy involved in speaking evil against our brothers and sisters. Not only are they in the image of God, but they are saved by Jesus Christ and freed from our own tyranny by the law of God. It is a, it is a wonderfully freeing thing, the law of God, isn't it? To be able to have a community of people walking in step with the law by the Spirit under the ultimate sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ is a wonderfully freeing thing. Somebody comes up to you in Romans 14, will speak to this and start saying, you know, I know the Bible doesn't exactly say this, but here's a conviction I have. And you can just say, brother, I love you and I don't care. I don't care at all. And it's awesome. Somebody else comes up to you and says, you know, I, I just feel like we might be able, we, we should probably be doing this in church. Oh, where's the, where's the scripture for that? What, what sort of theological conviction is this? And well, you know, it's more like, it's more like a really important spiritual impression and preference. And you oh, brother, I just don't care. Neither should you and neither should anybody else have a merry Sunday. It's a, it's a gloriously freeing thing to be anchored to the word and the law of God, the revelation of God and nothing else. That's why James says, he says, who do you think you are? In other words, look at verse 12. He's he's finished verse 11 by saying, you think you're upholding the law because you're making yourself a judge, but in fact, you're disobeying the law. You've, You've made the law insufficient. You've made up your own law and judged by that. And then you blaspheme God because you are saying that he's a great judge, but he's an assistant to the regional judge. You are the real judge. He's a great lawgiver, but he is an assistant to the, re- the, the real and overarching lawgiver being you. And so he says in verse 12, who do you think you are? There is only one lawgiver and judge. It's not you. Move aside. Rip up your law. Conform your mind and your judgments, your convictions and your preferences to the word of God, which gives liberty to other people. He's already called it the law of liberty prior in the passage. He will call it the royal law. Your law is not royal, which he has called God's law earlier in the passage. The law of love, he has called it. Any law that comes up out of the spiteful heart of man is a law bereft of love. So there is only one lawgiver. It's not you. Move aside. There is only one judge. It's not you. Get out of the office. He, the one who is the lawgiver and judge, is able to save and to destroy. You can do neither. Nobody is justified. Nobody is justified by meeting the standards of each other's laws. 
This again is why, why this just sows peace and righteousness in the community of God when we understand that we are all under Christ, under the word, bound to the law, but we are not under one, one another's laws and preferences and, and proclivities. We sow righteousness, we see peace because you're not making you a law. You're, you're not holding me to account to your own standards. <coughs> Who are you to judge your neighbor? He is the one able to save and to destroy. When, when, when we live up to, even if I was of weak conscience and I let your, your preferences, your own law, your strong personality, whatever it is, if I was to let that rule over me, or if a neighbor is to let that rule over them, and everybody meets all of the requirements to your law, that saves nobody. When we walk in God's law, there is peace, there is righteousness, and by faith in Christ, there's justification who met the law for us. But we are fickle, and we have ever-changing laws, ever-changing opinions, ever-changing preferences against one another. And even though somebody might try, maybe this is, this, this is the, 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 the wife that is somewhat emotionally abused. Maybe this is the husband that is emotionally abused. Maybe this is the children that are being tyrannized by overly legalistic parents. Maybe this is church members from legalistic churches. Maybe this is friends of people who are, who are self-lauding their preferences over one another, regardless when you live up to the fully fulfill the standards of somebody else's law, you're never justified. They never say, I'm so happy, you've made it, you're righteous, you're perfect, Con condemn condemnation is gone. No, there's always something else. They're always changing. Then you become a slave. There's never peace that is sown by living up to each other's righteousness. Only God's law has that life-giving, peace-sowing capabilities. So we, we gladly just bend our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ who speaks through Scripture and that is our sole authority. Let us not blaspheme God by making ourselves the judge and the lawgiver over one another. Who do you think you are? Who are you to judge your neighbor, James says at the end of verse 12. Paul picks up similar themes in Romans 14 and he says, each of us will give an account to him, of himself to God. Okay? So who do you think you are to judge your neighbor? You're nobody. God will not be dishing out rewards and withholding rewards from Christians to enter into glory at the end of time. He will not be doing that with you as his advisor. He doesn't care what you think. He doesn't care how many times that person offended you. He doesn't ask you how many things you wish they had done differently. The only degree of justice, the only bar of God's, uh, God's criticism or God's justice is going to be his own law. If they didn't sin against the word, they didn't sin at all because you don't define sin. We don't define sin because we're offended, annoyed, or inconvenienced. And if each person does not start, sitting, start listening to a sermon like this or reading a passage like this and saying, I know a friend who needs to hear this already, of course, sitting as judge over another person's soul, if instead we all just open ourselves up to the word, as chapter 2 told us, don't be defensive, but open our heart up in vulnerability to the, to, the, to the attacks of the word against our sin or to the seeds of the word into our life to bear fruit. If we each do that, what a wonderfully peaceful, righteous community of faith we will be. Where each person is thinking, not how they can judge others or whether other people will judge them, but what Jesus will say to you on the last day when he sees you. You will give an account to nobody here on the last day. You give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ.
Live with that in mind, and we will be an ever-righteous, ever-peaceful, loving community of God. So in verse 11 and 12, he says that the pride of life looks like you judging other people because apparently you're God and lawgiver and judge. And the pride of life also looks like, in verse 13 through 17, you planning your own life without a mind to the sovereignty of God because not only are you co-judge and co-lawgiver to God, you're also co-sovereign. You're also co-lord over all that happens in this universe. God technically will tell ourselves, God technically has the authority to execute, uh, to, to, you know, make an executive decision over all of my life, like technically, but, you know, he knows better than to do that. He knows better to just give me some respect, to uh, uh, honor and allow my kingdom to come and my will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the, the mindset that he's going against. So look at verse 13 again. He says, come now, you who say, tomorrow... Or today, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make such a profit. Yet, James says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Verse 14 is speaking to the reality that has already been brought up in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of selfish ambition, which in making plans, which in designing a course for your life, fails to take into account the kingdom of Christ as our ultimate goal and the sovereignty of God as the ultimate Lord, the ultimate decision maker, the ultimate thing we need to keep an eye out for. So this is not against planning. This is not against trying to make a profit. This is not against doing all that you can in the long uh, haul to honor Christ in profiting and leaving a legacy for your children and building something long term. None of those things are sin. But doing them without an eye to the sovereignty of God and aware that he can change your plans in an instant is the sin. So, so that Jesus will say in the Gospels uh, that he will speak against anxiety. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't, don't stress about tomorrow. You think, that, you think that you stay up stressing and trying to plan every jot and tittle of your day to try and avoid death and make your life longer? You think you're going to add a day to your life? You, you can't do anything. In fact, stressing like that will, will, will shorten your life. That's Jesus saying, don't be over-anxious. And this is James on the other side speaking against the arrogant and prideful. You know what I'm going to do? Without a, without a doubt, I'm going to go into the city, going to make that much money, I'm going to come back here, I'm going to buy that land, I'm going to start this business, I'm going to have these children, I'm going to have perfect health until here, I'm going to save up this amount, and nothing will be able to touch me. This is the pride and the arrogance that James is speaking about. Psalm 127. Psalm 127 doesn't say that it is a sin to build a house. He says it's a sin to build the house if Jesus isn't building the house. He doesn't say that it's, it's a sin to stay awake and watch over the city. He says you're doing it in vain if Jesus isn't doing it with you. Unless the Lord builds the house, you're laboring in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the town, you stay awake, you stay awake and, and, watch, and keep watch in vain. And yet let us never be found failing to build a house and live in it and failing to keep watch over the city for safety. The sovereignty of God is not an excuse for laziness. It is also a, an, an, a, a rebuke against pride. 
In verse 13 and 14, he tells us, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You don't even know if tomorrow you will wake up. When you think mist, don't think you've gone for a drive to the scenic rim, you got out at, at, at sunrise in the middle of winter, and you're looking out and there's this thick fog that sticks around for half a day and might leave, might not, a heavy thick fog. Don't think that. Think the mist that happens when you get up, uh, up on that morning and you breathe a, brush, a, a breath of fresh, warm air that is in front of your face for a moment and then gone. So much so that you just forget that it's there. You keep on breathing. The fog keeps on coming out of your mouth. and it just, It's there and it's gone so quickly, you, you, you get used to it. This is your life. It is so short. It is so fickle. It is so imbalanced and so fragile. I think in, in our modern day world, uh, as, as a nurse, I dealt a lot with death. I've touched more human bodies that are dead than I can count. I've put them in freezers, I've washed them up, I've gotten rid of horrible fluids, and, and very few people in this kind of world that we live in, in our society, have lived their whole life even seeing a single dead body in the flesh. This is a life that we live in that is so unique historically that everybody in the ancient world, and in fact, even in today's world, in, in uh, less wealthy nations, it is a regular occurrence to see a dead body. You cannot get away from the fact that life is fragile. There are dead bodies on the streets. You just wake up in the morning and a family member in your little kitchen living room home and where you all sleep on the ground, a family member expired throughout the night and it's your job to go and bury them. You, you, you people would die in their homes. You do hospital health care in your homes. You, very frequently, the, uh, you would only have 50% of your children that would make it through infanthood. Death is a natural part of life. And yet our kind of world that we live in has tried to sterilize and blind us to death. No one sees a death. It happens in a hospital far away in a dying ward. It happens away from all of our eyes. Uh, very even infrequently today do we even have open caskets because we are so uncomfortable with the idea of death. It's as if we just don't think that's a part of life. And yet in James' day, and in our day, we need to remind ourselves that for the rest of the world... Death is a natural, common, frequent occurrence. But how much do we need to hear James's warning? Life is a fragile breath and a mist that is here for a moment and then is gone. In our life of modernism, you know, being post-modernity uh, in, in sort of the, where we are historically, we just think we're, we're just children of this. We've just naturally been born to believe that when humans put their minds together, we can do whatever we want. You want to split an atom? Cool. Cut. Enough years, enough scientists, enough human brains, we will get it done. You want to reach the moon? You want to get a guy with a, with, a, with a solar car just to orbit space? You want to make it to Mars? It's all good. Give us a few years, enough money, and a few, enough entrepreneurs, we will make it happen. We tend to think that there is just there is this Babel mindset that we have, that if we have enough time, money, people, and God just gets out of the way, we will reach the heavens with our glory. And yet we need to be reminded by what James says today. Time is fragile. Life is a vapor. You are maybe moments or just decades, which is a blip on the whole stretch of human history, away from death. It is one of the most sobering and beneficial mindsets to realize that time is short. It is entirely unrepeatable. When it is gone, it is gone forever, and it is etched in God's eternal records for which we will give an account. 
You can never get it back, and you have less than you think. It's hard to get everything we want to say into a brief sermon. Yes, a brief sermon in the book of James, but I recommend to you heartily to go and read a sermon that was delivered by Jonathan Edwards called The Preciousness of Time and the Importance of Redeeming It and Warnings Against Procrastinating. Long sermon, it'll come up if you just type in Jonathan Edwards, The Preciousness of Time. One of the most sobering, beneficial sermons I've ever read in my life. Taking very much a theme that James is saying here. The pride, the, the folly of human pride is saying that God's, uh, uh, thinking that God's sovereignty is secondary, my sovereignty is primary, I make my plans, they will come to pass. <clears throat> but in verse 15 and 16, he corrects us to tell us the mindset we ought to have. In verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It, it sounds passive the way he says it, and that, that I bet you've all got that really pious friend who's just way more holy than you, and they let you know because every time you ask them to do something, they'll say, yeah, if the Lord wills, remember? Don't be so proud, you arrogant. I'll say, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll see you on Wednesday if the Lord wills. I'll get up in the morning if the Lord, as if they just need to tack it onto the end of every conversation to remind you of how holy they are. Okay, we've all read James 4, good stuff. But there's another way to take it that is kind of passive. Like, if the Lord wills, I'll do that. I don't know, I won't plan, but I'll wake up one day, and if the Lord has so willed it, I will have finished a degree and have a job, because God's sovereign. But it's not. It's, it's that we ought to be making plans. We ought to be active in thinking about the future of our life and, and building a productivity for the Lord. And yet everything has its knee bent to the reality that if God says no, then that door is closed. To have the phrase in your mind, if the Lord wills, or by God's grace, I will do this or that. To have that mindset deeply embedded in your mind is to recognize multiple things. First of all, that God is sovereign and every atom in the universe moves exactly as God has so ordained and controlled it to do so. Every cell reproduces or goes cancerous according to the divine and sovereign will of God. Every womb is open or closed. Every car crash occurs or is, or is prevented. Every single thing in life, every investment I make, every dollar in the bank account, every investment that has ever been made is controlled ultimately by God. To say, if the Lord wills, we recognize that. We recognize also by saying that, we're saying, in other words, he does not owe me a profit. He does not owe me children. He does not owe me good health. He does not owe me a job. He does not owe me any of those things. And so I will make plans, of course, to be ideal. I'm not planning to get sick. I'm not going to do that for, uh, on purpose, of course. And yet I'm going to plan for the best, knowing that God's plan is ultimately the best. And that's the third thing that it realizes is that when we say, if the Lord wills, we're also just training our hearts and minds to know that God's will is the best will. And that if that will includes a crash in the stock exchange, a horrible return on my investment, a mortgage that falls through and I'm out on the street, anything of those matters, a horrible doctor's diagnosis, if that is God's will, it is the best will because that is the will, the design for the future, according to his eternal purposes that redounds to the greatest glory of God. For every true Christian, that is your deepest heart. 
That God would be glorified above everything else. So there's, there's sort of two ways that we can conclude here. There's, there's two ways for pride to relate to the sovereignty of God. Both of them the Proverbs speak about. And we've said that James is a very Old Testament book. He often takes from and quotes from and borrows from the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs speaks of two types of people that are proud as they think about the will of God. First of all is the sluggard. The sluggard you don't think is proud. The sluggard you think is just so humble he doesn't do anything. The sluggard does nothing and wastes away his life in bed, tossing and turning, hitting the snooze button every single time, always has an excuse for why he doesn't have a job, always has an excuse for not having a license, always has an excuse for why he hasn't found a good church yet, always has an excuse for everything that goes wrong in his life, and the Proverbs and James diagnose that as pride, the folly of pride. This is the type of pride that says, maybe, you know, maybe they believe God's sovereign. Maybe not. But their arrogance and their pride is in that they think they have plenty of time. And they tell themselves, when I want to do something, I will do it. The only reason I haven't done those things is because I choose not yet to make it happen, and that's fine. I've got plenty of time. I'll do what I want when I want. And uh, uh, if I want to live in my mum's house until I'm 40-something, that's fine. I will do what I want when I want to do it. And when I want to be productive, I will be productive. Often this goes with infrequent church attendance and, and infrequent Christian disciplines because they do not have the humility that bends to God's law in all of life. So they're proud and they are lazy. They are the sluggard. Then, of course, there is the more obvious proud person that the Proverbs speak of having the haughty eyes. The haughty eyes of pride. These are the people that are so arrogant that they are extremely productive and extremely ambitious, both very good things, but they're doing those things without a consideration of God's sovereignty. Great and hallowed is my name. My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They also think, I will do what I want when I want. I will build my kingdom and my empire how I want to build it. And God's job is to support me in this endeavor. They also have infrequent church attendance and Christian disciplines because their kingdom is the one that they are building. They have not so shaped their life to be trying to build Christ's kingdom over their own. So what do both of them need to do? What's the solution for you? If you sort of find yourself leaning towards or living in one of those uh, levels of arrogance towards the will of God, it is to get busy, as busy and productive as you can, as zealous and unfatiguing as you can for the glory of Christ in the building of his kingdom through the church. Be zealous to glorify Christ by building his kingdom through the church. Now, that doesn't just mean you do a whole bunch of spiritual things. Here at Hope Church, we have a broad, robust definition of what it means to be building the kingdom of Christ. It means getting your job. It means fulfilling your purposes. It means being a good neighbor. It means starting a family. It means building a legacy. It means all of those things in unison with the Great Commission to win souls for the Lord Jesus and see the church built up in glory and sanctification. Where you do that, where you start doing that, where you get busy with that, where you see your life as bent to the will of God to glorify Jesus through the church, you will be humble, you will be in submission to God, this folly of building your own empire without the thoughts to God's sovereignty, or the pride that does nothing and wastes away your life, which is unredeemable time, or 
the arrogance of speaking against the law of God and the people of God, all of those things are done away when our highest effort, our highest priority is serving the Lord Jesus through the church to fulfill the Great Commission. Pride always produces a mixture of sin, and therefore verse 17 says, and this is where we close out, (coughs) verse 17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So maybe you're the lazy person, and you're saying, well, I'm not doing anything actively wrong. It's not like I'm, I'm going out to sinful parties. It's not like I'm getting drunk. It's not like I'm committing some horrible felony. No, but are you building the kingdom of Christ, and are you fulfilling your responsibilities as a man or woman of God? No. James says that this type of sin is a sin of omission. You're not committing a positive sin. You're failing to do the commandments of God so that you sin by failing to meet the standards. That's a sin of omission. You know what to do, you do not do it, therefore you are in sin. Or maybe on the other side, they'll say, well, I'm not actively sinning, I'm just building my kingdom, I'm just being productive, I'm just, just being a successful person. Is that so bad? Yes. Because you know that you ought to be giving glory to God, you know that you ought to be in submission to God's will, and yet you do not do it for you, that is sin, James says. And to speak evil against other people, to speak evil against people in the church, is actively breaking the law of God. It is to judge the law, it is to condemn the law, it is to condemn your brother and sister. So whether we know the right thing to do and fail to do it, or whether we know the right thing to do and refuse to do it and do the wrong thing, we are in sin. The command of God. God gives more grace. Jesus is our highest example and the good news to those who who have broken God's will and God's law. Jesus is the perfect example of somebody who came and submitted to the will of God, who was not haughty in his eyes and tried to get himself everything he could, he could uh, through his own selfish ambition and build his own empire. He was the one who came, submitted to the will of God, and therefore died for sinners like you and me, to make us friends of God, to make us righteous and cleansed in his, in, 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 by his blood and in his gospel. And therefore, that is our good news. We trust that. We lean on that. We, 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 we trust the fact that he died for sinners and we are made righteous in him. So rebels, come down and lay down your arms. Receive the Lord Jesus, be saved, and he will make, make you righteous in his sight. God will justify you. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, your scripture is so all-encompassing. It is truly the wisdom of God that applies to our life in every way. And we thank you for James. We thank you for the way that James writes and that James ex- uh, extols your mercy and, and expounds your grace. And yet he also delivers heavy rebuke to those who are lazy with your grace or who are sinful and use your grace as a license. Lord, we pray for repentance. We pray for sanctification. We pray for righteousness in our lives. Ella, we also pray that uh, in tonight's text, you would make us humble. Humble as we consider the will of God. He would make us those who recognize that at any moment you can do as you wish. We may not even wake up tomorrow. We may die in our sleep and you have, you have taken away nothing that we were owed. God, make us, make us productive for your kingdom. Make us ambitious for the Lord's glory. Let us to boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and build his kingdom and yet do everything under the submission to Christ's authority and rule. 
Make us those who, who, who hate to speak evil against one another, who hate to hear it spoken, and delight to see people in submission to God's law, not our law, God's word, and not our word. Make us a people that love each other through obedience to the law for each other's sake and to glorify God and make us people who are in submission to the will of, our, of the one and only sovereign. And in Jesus' name, we all prayed and said, Amen. Amen.